Hello, and welcome to the Great American Novel Podcast. I'm Scott Yarbrough. And I'm Kirk Kerna. Kirk, the novel we're discussing today is... Revolutionary Road by Richard Yates. Very interesting novel, very interesting publication and reception history. Novel comes out in 1961, right on the cusp between two eras, I would say, where it's a, what we might think of as a silent generation novel, but it's got a lot of uh, angst and uh, energy uh, that is going to influence our perceptions of American culture well past the 60s. So very interesting stories about Richard Yates. I think it's a very unusual kind of reclamation or rediscovery of him about 15 to 20 years ago. There was a time when most of us would not have known who Richard Yates was, except you, Scott, because you knew him personally. Well, met him personally a couple of times. Uh, We weren't exactly card playing buddies or anything like that. When I You weren't hanging out with him drinking and flicking the cockroaches off no, the table? No, after a couple of years of working for the state of Florida, when that did not necessarily imply political insanity, I returned to graduate studies at University of Alabama and moving there in July of 1992. And like any very broke graduate student, I quickly found out where a lot of the cheapest, easiest ways to eat around town where, and there was <laughs> not far from where I lived, there was a Pizza Inn, I believe, or maybe it was even Pizza Hut, but I think it was Pizza Inn. I don't think it's quite as good as Pizza Hut. And they had a really cheap, like $5 all you can eat with soda buffet. Yes, I, rem- I remember those days vividly. Yeah. You would hit that buffet and eat for a week. Exactly. And a couple of times I saw in, you know, our very early part of the semester, or even before school started, this man that I thought was quite elderly there with his oxygen tank and a kind of tube going up around uh, into his head and with a nose breather eating there. One time he had a, a, you know, much younger woman with him who had, I remember just dyed green hair before that was kind of so common. You don't even (laughs) notice it anymore. You know, she seemed like a college age girl. And I thought, you know, that's nice. That's his granddaughter come back to take her grandpa Mm -hmm. out. But not too long after we're probably talking early to mid September, I was stepping up the steps to Morgan Hall, which at that time, and I think still was where the English department at University of Alabama was housed. And the same gentleman was struggling to get his oxygen canister up these steps. And so I went over and helped him and said, hey, don't I know you from Pizza Inn? He goes, yeah. And we, we started talking about pizza and then the weather and just various strange things. I had no idea who it was up to this point. And I ran into one of the uh, MFA students who said, wow, I didn't know you knew Richard Yates. And I said, I don't know that I do. Who's Richard Yates? <laughs> and he told me. So then I went to the bookstore and I found 11 Kinds of Loneliness and was pretty blown away by that collection of stories. And I bought a couple of other novels and was waiting for the time to come up to him at a reading or a party or something, get them signed or figure out how to get a hold of him. And before the end of the semester, unfortunately, he got sick and passed away. Yeah. And so that's summation of my, my Richard Yates, or I should say friendship and companionship. There wasn't a whole <laughs> lot more to it than that. Well, I think this is the first writer that uh, either of us can brag about actually having met in the flesh and blood and spent time with. So it's a, it's a great connection. And uh, there is a little bit of an interesting irony, I guess, that Richard Yates ends, ended up at Alabama for the last month of his 
last month of his life, and that's where he died. Died at the age of 66, which is, again, is relatively young. But as you say, he had been in poor health for a long, long time before that. Let's take a step back before we get too far into the biography, though, and talk about Revolutionary Road in particular. It is a type of novel that I think is both an epitome of a certain strain of American literature, but also maybe a trendsetter in a few ways. I think for most readers, if you know anything about Revolutionary Road, you know that it probably gets stereotyped as uh, the quintessential uh, novel of the suburbs. Right. And this was a type of literature that uh, really the predominant strain of literature between World War II and, say, the early to mid-60s. So Revolutionary Road is important in, in that regard. Where it breaks the mold a little bit, I think, is maybe in some of its treatment of the business background that we'll talk mm. about, because most of these suburban novels really deal with a particular industry, usually associated with advertising. Right. One of the things we want to talk about is kind of the link between advertising and literature and why a lot of this generation of folks like Elmore Leonard or Joseph Heller had such uh, connections to it. One of the things we'll talk about Revolutionary Road is the particular industry that the character Frank Wheeler is involved in. So let's just talk a little bit about what happens in the book. Scott, you want to give us a quick overview? Absolutely. So we are introduced to a young couple, youngish couple. They have a couple of children, Frank and April Wheeler. And at the beginning of the novel, she is an aspiring and talented, we're led to believe, amateur actress putting on a small local play. And in her disappointment at all the things that goes wrong, we see that there's a kind of deep gulf of unhappiness in her. And it's kind of showing you very early on in the book, the old Thoreau notion of majority of people, he said men, but the majority of people lead lives of quiet desperation is very much what this book is kind of about. So Frank is looking for some way to feel important to make up for his lost father. There are The novel does wear some of its kind of Freudian leanings very heavily mm-hmm. on its lapel. So both of them have kind of runaway or, or failed fathers that they're trying to make up for in that very Freudian sense. And they start to kind of figure out a way to give purchase to their lives, him through at first having a kind of meaningless affair. And then they come up with this decision. They're going to move to Europe and she's going to work and he's going to be kind of bohemian and think and hang out and educate himself. There's no real project there. And when she gets pregnant again, everything kind of falls apart and they start dividing between him thinking it's safer and simpler and more practical to stay here and take some advantage of opportunities he has in the business world while he's not really able to perceive or understand or care about really her own developing depression and kind of disdain and even hatred for him in some ways. Her sense of entrapment in this marriage. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fascinating novel because and we'll get into this more later. It It's not the only book of its kind that came out. There are many that are very similar. And the other writers who I would say 
you know, before this time, you know, we had the man in the gray flannel suit by Sloan Wilson, which I think probably has some, uh, a little bit of a, an influence on this novel. We have coming at the same time in short fiction, John Cheever, who's breaking into novels throughout the 60s, kind of arriving in short fiction and then publishing in the late 60s throughout the 70s. And at a certain point, I thought if his face was not on the cover of the New York Times book review, then he probably had been sick that week. Uh, John <laughs> Updike started churning out these novels of you know suburban discontent right? as well. These are all the people we would associate with this this kind of subgenre, and a kind of a prelude to it might be the much earlier John O'Hara novel, Appointment mm-hmm. Samara, um, yep. which I think also is another influence here. I can go you even one earlier than John O'Hara. I sometimes make the argument that F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Beautiful and Damned is oh, one yeah. of the proto suburban novels, but. We also want to think of Sinclair Lewis and Babbitt, even though right. that's a more of a satire with cartoonish characters. It's very much in the same vein of uh, disliking the middle class communities that are that are sprouting up, little commuter communities. I do think that's exactly the origins. We have Sinclair Lewis and, and the people writing like him. So we think of those Theodore Dreiser novels like uh, Sister Carrie and, and the gigantic one, uh, uh, American tragedy and what they're doing through naturalism. And it kind of recedes under modernism and the push for other things throughout the 50s. And I, so I think maybe the books, again, heralded by Yates, Cheever, Updike, are these kind of second generation of these novels about what happens when we sell ourselves out to to making money in business, to these lives of quiet desperations, to being kind of entrapped. Even the the great, most famous play of the era right before this death of a salesman Mm -hmm. is right in that vein. Yep. So it is a novel. It's unique in a couple of ways that we'll talk about. I think Frank Wheeler's eventual capitulation to the business world makes this a little unique, Mm. but also I think April's, what she does with her pregnancy, it bends the novel a little toward melodrama yeah, that I think maybe might turn some people off. This were if this were actually an Updike or Achiever novel, it would probably end up in a uh, separation, if not a divorce. But Yates takes it in a very different way. We also want to talk about the fact that this suburban sort of discontent becomes a trope that continues all the way up until uh, contemporary times. Right. I grew up watching movies. I don't know if you ever saw this movie, but the first movie that the actor Matt Dillon was ever in was a HBO staple in the late 70s called Over the Edge. And it was about how how all these teenagers stuck in the suburbs were bored to tears and were getting involved, looking for kicks and thrills in this world that was sort of uh, defined by conformity and and sapped of uh, originality. But I think maybe the main influence of Yeats in recent years and this genre has been with the uh, very popular TV show Mad Men. Absolutely. is very much a throwback to this era and this genre that we're talking about. I think Don Draper is a more interesting character in a lot of ways, more creative character than Frank Wheeler, but also the fact that, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm fascinated by the fact that a lot of these novels about businessmen 
discontent that they are advertising guys, that yeah. they're creatives. And Frank Wheeler is is not so much a creative. He's kind of a yeah. hack in what he does. And uh, that's maybe what makes the novel so distinct to me. So the desire to escape to Paris, I think, is also very interesting because that's a little passe by 1955 right. in which right. the novel is set. You know, there's a danger when people read it that they take a side. Right. So since Frank's kind of self-indulgent and full of himself and believes his own line of patter, then April must therefore be good, enlightened, and the person we're really supposed to root for. Yeah. But then you realize that April also believes her own notions, her own ideas, and has absolutely no realistic way of dealing with life's problems other than to thinking you can just flee them and you can move to Paris and everything will miraculously be all right. And so the, although until things get extreme in the last portion of the book, she may be a little bit more sympathetic. Mm -hmm. I actually don't think she's any more free of our judgment, free of, of our different ways that we might just, you know, disdain these characters. I don't think she's any more free of that scrutiny than Frank is um, for yeah, the most no, part. I agree completely. You know, the sort of central disease that all of these suburbanites discover is the or that suffer is the belief that they're special. Yeah. But they have not found the the environment that brings out their special qualities. And, you know, I don't think in any way we are we want to argue that n none of us are that interesting when you boil down to it. But I also think that we probably fight our own battles to be individuals in different ways. And the, the most obvious way of staging that is against our environment. And so the suburb becomes a kind of natural foil against right. which we try to, try to define ourselves. And I think the big, you know, the big issue that these books really explore, well, I'll, I'll just give you a quote that Richard Yates himself gave the literary journal Plowshares in 1972, about 10 years after the book. He talked about the fact they asked him specifically were you really coming after the suburbs? And he says, no, it's a little bigger than that. He said, I think I meant it more as an indictment of American life in the 1950s, mm. because during the 50s, there was a general lust for conformity all over the country. Yeah. And by no means only in the suburbs, a kind of blind, desperate clinging to safety and security at any price exemplified politically in the Eisenhower administration and the Joe McCarthy witch hunts. Anyway, a great many Americans were deeply disturbed by all that, felt it to be an outright betrayal of our best and bravest revolutionary spirit. And that was the spirit I was trying to embody in the character of April Wheeler. I mean, the titles to suggest that the Revolutionary Road of 1776 had become something very much like a dead end in the 50s. So we're buying into this notion of 50s conformity. Right. And, it, and it's a, very much a middle class conformity because... You know, we have to recognize that this this disease of conceit that the wheelers are suffering is a middle class ailment. It's not something that's necessarily available to the unnamed protagonist of Invisible Man right. or other minority novels of the 1950s. Well, and you bring up a number of good points. When we think about Mad Men, one of the ways it differs is it creates sympathy for Don Draper by making him a great Gatsby Mm -hmm. figure and you see a right. whole lot of Gatsby in that he reinvents himself no one knows his his real name or his real past he's a he's a veteran and so it's almost as if they moved 
Fitzgerald's Gatsby character and made him a bit less romantic and a little more focused on the the American dream part of it that those essays right. you got so sick of in your editing at <laughs> the Fitzgerald Review. So and that's one of the things like of course that I think gives Mad Men its legs and makes it interesting. You know, the other film from around the same time period is uh the, the beginning of Mad Men, actually a few years earlier, or the film adaptation of Revolutionary Road might be yeah. office space. Yeah. We have exactly. the character who absolutely <laughs> refuses to do work, who just pokes at and messes with the efficiency experts to come in to review the office. They love the guy, think he's a straight shooter and just promote him right at the ranks. Just yeah. like Frank Wheeler does almost nothing, but kind of talk a line and is promoted well, right the, up uh, the ranks. I think that's one of the ways in which these books are a little difficult to identify with now, because what we really are in a lot of ways critiquing is that sort of central unparalleled period from 1946 to 1947 to 73 or 74, the recession era, where the middle-class American prosperity was at its peak. Yeah. And so all of these literary authors and filmmakers and, and uh, TV shows were talking about, you know, what is the meaning of happiness and contentment? And you, can you find that contentment when your ideas of happiness are defined by notions of prosperity. Right. I was thinking about this the other day. John Cheever's most famous short story is The Swimmer. Yeah. You know, and it's all a critique of all of all of the middle class uh, people who have swimming pools. So, right. you know, I was back out at my pool, which is my one consumer luxury I allow uh -huh. myself in life. Not like I'm driving a Z28 or, you know, wearing Armani or anything, but I do like having a pool. I think and you just dated my... us when you said Z28, <laughs> by the way. Well, I, I did that for a very specific reason. <laughs> my, my father, and I want to talk about him and corporations a little bit later, but, you know, that was very much a sort of middle class, middle aged male identity crisis purchase. But I'm sitting out at my pool the other day and my backyard overlooks a little pond. And it's been very frustrating this summer because all of these people come out and fish right behind my house in this uh. pool. And I feel a little seen when I'm out in my backyard drinking margaritas with my partner and having people over. I feel like all these people are looking in my house Yeah, and I'm, and I'm just kind of like, where is, where is my, you know, I don't have a privacy fence cause I don't want to really be, you know, hemmed in, but I do have a fence, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, you know, you riffraff need to go fish somewhere <laughs> else. So that's very much my revolutionary road experience at the moment. My suburban discontent. When we look at how all these various works arrive the first thing that really strikes you is that Yates himself doesn't really become an overnight success or anything, of course, in the mm -hmm. way that Cheever just has this kind of slow build through what I think of as a ton of New Yorker stories. And then the novels come out. And although he never achieves kind of nationwide fame, he's he's a professional writer who's respected everywhere. And everything he writes kind of gets published. But uh, And then Updike becomes a bestseller. And yeah. his his book sell for films, and one of the things uh, with Yates is he has this very 
he writes Revolutionary Road, and it's eight more years before he publishes his second novel, which no one reads. And then it's six more years before the third novel, which no one really reads. He kind of makes a return in Easter Parade, but this is, by that point, we're looking at, you know, 15 years have passed where he's not able to pay bills, where he's been very broke. I think you mentioned to me before we started recording that friends extend him a chance to work in the very famed University of Iowa uh, Writers Workshop, which is kind of how he's able to get a second lease on on life and on his creative side and smooth things out because he's in pretty bad shape Yeah, leading up to that point. And part of it is like so many of the other writers we deal with is contending with alcoholism. Yeah. Not only does he come from very unhappy uh, family life, but he goes through an unhappy family yeah. life as well. So he's yeah. all that's being channeled into these stories and books. Even some mental illness in there has, has a lot of uh, yeah. sort of emotional breakdowns at different periods of his life. I, th- I think what's interesting to me about the guy is in the period that he's writing Revolutionary Road, unlike John Updike, whose only, jo- whose only job before becoming a full-time novelist was writing for The New Yorker or Cheever, unlike those writers, he writes for the Remington Rand Corporation, which was in the process during the time he worked there from moving from a tabulating kind of company to a computer systems company yeah. and a business organization. So he's he's writing a lot of what we think would think of as corporate literature about systems management. I think if when you sit down and you look at what happens to Frank Wheeler and how he is kind of seduced away from this impossible dream of living whatever kind of bohemian lifestyle, it's not a creative one, but it's right. just the dream of total freedom that we begin to see why Yates maybe work influence had a lot more to do with the character development than, you know, people like Heller, who really were just doing advertising as a way to kind of make money in the early years. It's very fascinating. I I got two questions for you, Scott, to kind of go back to this context. First of all, why do we hate the suburbs? Uh And then second, why do we hate corporations? Because we know, as our esteemed senator from Utah, has told us corporations are people too. Yeah. Mitt Romney. In the eyes of the, the courts these days, right? A yeah, corporation corpor- can be a person. Although I guess corporations are made up of people who are incorporated into a business in a way. You know, the, to start with the second one, I think because when a you have a, let's call it a company, everyone in that company has a face and you identify all the good, the bad, the ugly with different people who represent the company, whereas once it gets big enough and rich enough, there's the perception, however true or not, that people no longer matter, that the only thing that matters is that the corporation meet its bottom line goals, which become more and more and more exacting year in and year out. And you look at what was expected in terms of rate of return from a lot of big oil companies, big publishing companies, big insurance companies in the 50s and 60s, Compared to today, it's astounding how much more money they expect to make. And they seem to be held to it by shareholders. Yeah. And I I think it's the idea that the corporation really doesn't care about any individuals particularly. 
It only cares about money. And so there's a kind of, it's everything that's bad about capitalism right? wrapped up think, in it. I think that's a great way of saying it. It's kind of the profit motive as a reason of existence. It's right. almost Darwinian, whereas it gets sold, however, through the American dream is this, of this idea of, uh, of aspiration, moral aspiration. Yeah. If you are successful, you will rise up through the ranks. You know, this is a period in which most uh, middle class workers are shifting over to white collar work from trades. But there's also a lot of angst in the 1950s about what corporation working for a corporation does to one's individuality. You mentioned man in the gray flannel suit, and I always have to chuckle at that because when I was in my early 20s and my one effort to fit into a corporation doing technical writing for a for a company, people there used to mock IBM because at the time, IBM, most powerful computer company at that moment, soon to be superseded. But they had a sort of a dictum that there was a work uniform for white collar people. It was gray trousers and a blue blazer. White shirt, red tie. Yeah. And that was kind of hearing those kinds of stories was when I sort of said, you know, screw this, I'm going to go be a teacher. Yeah. Because I knew I would not be happy, you know, having to do that sort of thing. I will say for, I think, probably our parents' generation, you and I are probably unique amongst our peers and that we've worked for the same institution our entire lives. That's right. very different uh, Generation X experience than my parents, you know, my, uh, and I bring this up for a specific reason. My father was a company man. My father died at the company that he worked for, died in his office after hours, was mm. putting in F extra hours and ended up dying alone. And for many years, I always took that as sort of the ultimate fate of the gray, the man in the gray flannel yeah. suit. I think that, you know, we love to bash corporations because it's, it is a very sort of knee jerk American thing to think that we are at heart or should be allowed to be individuals. At the same time, you and I as department chairs at different points in our lives have had to deal with people who were maybe just a little too individualistic yeah. and thought they were a little too special to do things like paperwork or pay their taxes. Yeah. So, or, or return student papers within the month that it, they're submitted it, or exactly. any of those things. Yes, yes. You know, and it's funny. So we look at that. We look at life in the in the suburbs. And the problem with that, I think, is the same thing. Well, if you're the special individual, what does it mean that you're just like everyone else in your neighborhood? Right. And you, you all have the same kind of house built by the same groups of builders. You all have the same kind of families and kids, especially if we think back into the 50s and you had all these, you know, neighborhood committees that is famously talked about in Raising the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry to make sure that they all stay very, very homogenous in terms of racial diversity. So this is a black yeah. suburban neighborhood, the white suburban suburban neighborhood, the Catholic one, the Jewish one, and so on, reinforcing with invisible boundaries all our various ways of being bigoted against each other. And it's in this era that the uh, famous folk song, Little Boxes, about tiki-tacky yeah. houses, yeah. is a big is a big hit on college campuses because that's the ultimate ultimate sort of sign of suburbia where you live in a you know you live in a version of Levittown. Right. And the other thing that fiction does in this same time period is 
it breaks completely away from realism. So right. if we think of the other big push in literature in the late 50s through the 60s, we have the postmodernism in all kinds of ways. So all the all the novels by John Barth, which go from kind of existentialism to metafiction, we have the work of uh, Heller, uh, you know, um, in Catch-22, which is, again, much like Yeats. He wasn't super prolific at first, but he does have a giant bestseller, so he doesn't really have to be. And Kurt Vonnegut, who's very much starts off being just a little bit of kind of allegorical science fiction, but is doing full-blown postmodern stuff by the end of the 60s. And so they break exactly the opposite kind of way in terms of let's just not worry too much about the realism. Let's just be real creative. And if if we're going to critique the American scene, we'll do it kind of allegorically rather than straightforwardly. And Yeats, Yeats actually hated all of that postmodernism yeah. because the realists themselves almost became corporate writers in the sense that there was a language of literature exemplified by the New Yorker. Yes. Although the irony is Yeats never got into the New Yorker while he was alive. But, you know, there was a certain notion of what uh, what literature should professionally sound like. And it was this sort of micro-realism that uh, Cheever and, and Yeats and guys like this were, were doing. As we draw these connections between Yeats and these other writers, Updike and Cheever and so on, wh- I think one of the things we have to do is to say, so why, other than his own demons he battled with and, and that got between him and his writing and being blocked for different ways for so long, other than that, why does he have a harder time becoming a a bigger deal, given the respect shown in his books and given that he comes back into print? They do a movie adaptation with Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, you know, reuniting the Titanic stars in the film adaptation that came out in 07 or, excuse me, 2008. And one of the differences is that although Updike's characters will often make you cringe and wince at, for lack of a better term, moments of weakness or flat-out neediness, he's always trying to give you a hook by which to like someone mm-hmm. or appreciate someone. So he's not he doesn't want you to disdain Rabbit Angstrom. He wants you to identify with him. Yeah. And, of course, Cheever, who mostly writes short fiction, still is trying in kind of through language to, to pull you in. And one of the things I might say is these very uncomfortable novels that make us look at ourselves in the mirror in disdainful ways are really hard to sustain. And Yeats has a trick that makes this novel succeed when maybe it shouldn't succeed if we look at how he writes his characters. But stylistically, what is he really doing? I mean, there's no lyricism like Fitzgerald. There's no sparse poetry of line like Hemingway. There's none of the kind of effusive poetry of Faulkner or uh, Virginia Woolf. There's none of the showy vocabulary of uh, Updike. One of the pans that always Updike would always get was that he poeticized the suburb. Right. I remember when I first started reading Updike and I had to look up the word ubiquity or ubiquitous. Right. And I just thought that was the greatest idea ever that this polysyllabic word existed until I tried to use it in a conversation a few times. But that's never a word that you would see really in Yates, I don't believe. 
Well, I was just going to say there's a great article from the Boston Review in 1999 by Stuart O'Nan, who at that time was kind of breaking in as a, as a bit of a novelist himself um, and has continued to be, I guess, although I can't say I followed his career closely. And for anyone who's really interested in Yates, this is a great short way to appreciate his career. But one of the things he talks about is that the style itself is, is pretty flat and straightforward. Like, I don't remember any particular use of metaphor or simile or beautifully well-wrought mm-hmm. line that easily comes to mind in the way that so many stories by Fitzgerald or Hemingway, uh, so many books by so many other writers we love, we can, you know, certain lines and sequences come to mind. And the other thing is he doesn't give you any hooks with the characters. Yeah. Onan writes, the question of what the reader is supposed to do with his or her sympathy and empathy is complex in Revolutionary Road, also in the later work. As Greek tragedy turns around its character's fatal flaws, so does Yeats' fiction. The depth and breadth of characterization is much fuller, of course, but the end result is the same. The characters earned their downfall seem faded to it. It's this merciless limiting of his people that makes Yeats unique, and the process readings work so affecting, some would say terrifying. We recognize the disappointments, miscalculations characters suffer from our own less-than-heroic lives, and Yeats refuses spoon-feed us the usual redeeming, life-affirming plot twists, makes everything better. No comedy dilutes the humiliation, which, of course, is what Philip Roth in his early work, which is more sure. this category than his later work, does. It's what Updike does. When it's time to face the worst, there's no evasion whatsoever, no softening of the blows. Yeah. One of the things that struck me is all these writers really hit with short stories first. Mm-hmm. If there's anything we're missing now in the world of American letters, it's the importance of the short story. We still have tons of little magazines and small journals that don't pay most of the people who write in them anything except free copies. Mm-hmm. And they're they're churned out by the truckload. But I'm not convinced how many people are reading them beyond the people involved in their production and the society their, they're part or the, of. Or their families. Their families or in the people publishing in them. Yeah. Yet, when you go back through the earliest days of the century, up through the 90s, writers always broke in, usually with short fiction. So Fitzgerald, Hemingway, and Faulkner, you only have a real understanding of their career if you also have read all their short fiction. And I would say in all three cases, but particularly in Hemingway and Fitzgerald's cases, much of their best writings in short fiction. Yeah. Well... I would say that Yeats was part of the last generation that could barely eke out a apprenticeship by publishing short stories in magazines like the Atlantic Monthly or Esquire, which was his two main forms. Another guy that I always put in the same category, actually born here in Troy, Alabama, Jesse Hill Ford, who's most famous for the novel uh, The Liberation of uh, Lord Byron Jones but in the 50s was sort of an esteemed short story writer. Those are guys that, again, are coming into the literary profession in the early 50s, in their late 20s, early 30s. And there's a code there. It's a professional code. Stylistically, you can't be flashy. You have to kind of fit the mood of these magazines. Yeah. And I think that stymied Yates a little bit. The other thing I was going to say and I think you're exactly right about the short story. I think 
Yates, when you are so scrupulously focused on the sentence and then the paragraph, but not the arc of a story or experimental writing at all, it's hard to sustain a novel. Yeah. It gets very repetitive, where I think Updike certainly had an advantage, and, and to a lesser extent, Cheever, is they were willing to take on the changes in contemporary society. Mm. You know, if you think of the rabbit novels, the four of them, they are very much this kind of same school of realism, a little flashier, but where they're very much different is each of them takes on a specific decade, and you're talking about the immense social changes. So you, you can read Updike as a kind of social chronicle of changes huh. throughout the year. You can't do that with Yates. No. After Revolutionary Road and after 11 Kinds of Loneliness, Almost all of his fiction looks back into the 40s and 50s. You do not have novels or stories that take on contemporary changes. It's almost like time stops at this certain moment of his lyric growth. And I think that hurt him a lot. Easter Parade is a fabulous book, but it's also very much, it, you know, all of his writing feels after this novel feels kind of fly in amber type mm. of writing. You're deconstructing a certain period that if you're a young reader or aspiring writer in the 70s or 80s, I, I totally see why you would think of this as being a throwback. Right. Well, and, and that's a really good point because those, those other writers do grow old with their characters and their mm -hmm. characters are writing have very much the same perspective that the, the writers have uh, of being someone in his 60s who is now trying to figure out how do things work in the 70s or 80s, as opposed to looking back to when he was in his 30s all the time. Yeah. They're taking on the sexual revolution, obviously, but they're also in later decades taking on issues like AIDS, feminism. None of those issues are seem relevant at all to, to Yeats's novels. Uh, they're very yeah. much sort of framed in his early coming to experience. I, and in fact, I was thinking about this the other day. If you think about this novel is set in 1955. Imagine if it were set in 1962 as opposed to 1961. There's no, there's no problem because April Wheeler could get on the pill. Yeah. But the big dilemma here about marriage and childbearing is taken care of for you if you're a responsible adult after the, after 1961. Yeah. And of course, it wouldn't be the same story in 1982 in, in any right. way. Yep. And certainly not in our, our current time. Look at us. We're just like everyone else. We've bought into the same ridiculous delusion. Let me fly. This idea that you have to settle down, to resign from life. I want to feel things. Really feel them. A man only gets a couple of chances in life. It won't be long before he's sitting around wondering how he got to be second rate. We can't go on pretending that this is the life we wanted. I support you, don't I? I work 10 hours a day at a job I can't stand. You don't have to. But I have the backbone not to run away from my responsibilities. Who made these rules anyway? You got me safely in this little trap. You think you can bully me into feeling whatever you, you want me to feel? In a trap. Yes. You yes. In a trap.
one of the things I threw out to you in the outline, and this is I'm um, jumping ahead a little bit, but Kirk and I, as we as we ready these, we kind of bounce these outline ideas back and forth, and sometimes we follow them, sometimes we just kind of jump around. And uh, we're in a more of a jumping around mood today a little bit, but <laughs> is Hemingway uses a term a couple of times early on when it seems very evident that his first wife, Hadley, got pregnant before Ernest Hemingway thought she would be pregnant or thought their family had planned to be pregnant. And he, so the thing that pops up a few times in both stories and his letters is the old biological trap. And meaning at that point, you're committed to a relationship, whether you want to be or not. And you're committed to a certain lifestyle, whether you want to be or not. And so we have in one of his greatest short stories, Hills Like White Elephants, this very interesting story where a American man is telling the, the woman with him, who's probably his wife, he's trying to convince her without coming out and acting like he cares one way or the other that she needs to have an abortion so they can maintain a free and easy lifestyle. And it's also very clear she's not going to be happy and she thinks they're losing sight of what their family is supposed to be about and that they're focusing on the wrong things. And it's kind of an interesting critique in the way that Babylon Revisited by Fitzgerald is, it's kind of a critique of the modernist, you know, lost generation bohemian lifestyle. Um, and it's it's an interesting reversal because it's the man trying to convince the woman to have the abortion. And I always tell my students, there's no such thing as a pro-life, pro-choice debate, really, at this point in history. Don't try to graft this onto post-70s politics completely. Yeah. Uh, it can certainly inform your take on it, for sure, but don't think that a writer is choosing a side in a debate which doesn't really exist politically yet in in this way. Look at it more carefully than that. And in this novel, we kind of have a complete reversal of that, where we have Frank is trying to force her to, or wants her to keep the baby. And the question becomes, is this because he actually is a little bit cowardly about going to France, is it because he thinks it's not the right thing to do to to abort the, the pregnancy or what's going on? And so it, it turns the whole story completely upside down. And then she's the one choosing what you know she wishes to do yeah. instead of the man trying to do the, you know the opposite. It just kind of flips all over around. And what, what do you think of that, Kurt? Well, I think that, uh, you know, the, the text that I would compare it to is Philip Roth's Goodbye Columbus, yeah. which ends with the revelation that Brenda Potemkin has a diaphragm and is therefore sexually active and in kind of control of her biological destiny. And that's yeah. perceived as a threat to the man. So we're in one of these situations, and this usually happens in suburban fiction, but whatever social changes going on are perceived as threats to the masculine ability to control the relationship, yeah. to control the environment. You know, one of the early scenes that I think is maybe a little too heavily symbolic is Frank tries to build this path from the house down to the street. He's going to put a little walkway in his front yard. Right. And, you know, he's totally terrible at it. Now, if you're like Scott and I, when you try to do home improvements, it t- turns into a kind of comedy of errors where you end uh, up, uh, you of know, course. shaving off a toe with the uh, the bush trimmer or whatever. But those moments really dramatize the fear of male weakness, and so I think the ability to control women's reproductive cycles, whatever you want to call it, 
this is the era in which women are getting that autonomy and are being told you have that right to that autonomy. And, uh, you know, another good contrast would be Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar, in in which, you know, she is sexually active, but also very conscious about not getting pregnant, dealing with this whole notion of, uh, you know, we tend to think of abortion stories as being kind of teenage stories or young people, but it really is in the issue in marriage for yeah. people. At what point have you fulfilled your biological destiny with 2.5 kids or whatever? I think we probably both know many, many couples that we would consider pretty, you know, cons- conservative who elect to use abortion pills for for whatever reason. Time is just not right. Now that may change as the laws change here. And that's a big challenge, you know, that that maybe the next wave of fiction will take. So I think the whole notion of the trap again it clamps down on this idea of you as an individual being able to do whatever you want. And at the end, you know, Frank Wheeler loses, but he also wins because he's yeah. free of marriage. He's free of his children. His children go to live with the ideal family, ideal surrogate family, father, mother. And he's off to the urban area where he can go hit on secretaries to his heart's delight. Although it's interesting that his, his neighbor who falls in love with April at sees Frank at the end and had always kind of admired his his brain a little bit. Yeah now sees him as just a farce of a human who, you know, just a shambles of the former person he used to be. You know, you've always got in these suburban novels, you've always got the the one character who feels that they're better than their environment. And then you have kind of the male foil who is kind of the hypocritical suburbanite, you know, the one that, the one that upholds all the uh, HOA rules but yeah. is always, you know, scoping around in the back. It's a very interesting scene because you're talking about Shep Campbell. Yeah. And just by the name alone, you know, the guy's going to be sort of the the foil to Frank. But, you know, he and April end up having a fling in the back seat of a car. And did you catch what he says to her? Oh, April, I love you. Yeah. And she's like, uh, you know, I'm not even oh, sure. That. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not even sure you know who you are. And I know I don't know who I am. So let's not do that. In a weird way, that's that's a kind of male fantasy in and of itself, too, I think, for for men to be able to have that kind of freedom, but under the guise of still wanting to be romantic about those kinds of things. So there's all kinds of ways you can look at these characters. Well, and that's where I think the novel succeeds because Frank and April in themselves are not interesting enough or likable enough yeah. to really sustain the book. And so after you read the f- opening set of chapters, you're thinking, this is going to be a hard grind. I'm already tired of these guys. And then what Yates does very successfully is introduce these other characters around them so that we have the occasional chapter from the neighbor's points of view. Mm-hmm. And we see how the outsiders see the wheelers. We see how other people recognize them and identify with them or pull against them. Yeah. And those chapters become kind of interesting because it's it's good use of foils. You know, the Campbells are also almost a kind of mirror 
image, you know, kind of flip flop, and that right. the boar who goes on and on, like Frank, is actually the wife. Yeah. Shep's in one of these secret dreams of how it's all going to work out. Although April, by that point in the novel, has given up her her fantasies and dreams of of Paris and and escape yeah. and everything, and she just decides to have a flame because she felt like it. And when Frank, in the interest of coming clean, has to tell her about the affair he has for a while in the book. She says, why did you have to tell me that? What, yeah. She's what's like, the reason in letting me know about it? Yeah. And and the answer is she nails it. She says, you want me to say that I care, but I say that I care because I love you. And I can't give you that anymore. You know, she's yeah. just done with it. Again, I keep going back to the madman comparison. And you think about two of the key moments that really, there were three things, that, two things that made you really root for whether you liked him or not, Don Draper. One was he was just this male id, you know. I mean, he, if you remember the Saturday Night Live parody they did yeah. where John Hamm is playing Don Draper and the Saturday Night, even the comedians are all like, oh, Don Draper, let me get out of these panties. You know, it was <laughs> just that sort of notion of irresistibility. He had that yeah. sort of male swagger, but it was tied to the fact that he was a creative. Hmm. And the two key moments in that show, one was with the Kodak carousel, where he came up with this beautiful sort of dream image of what advertising can sell you and the poetry of it. And of course, the ending of it, where he in flirting with the, you know, self-awareness movement of the 70s ends up uh, coming up with the, you know, most famous jingle ever. You know, yeah. like to teach the world to sing. And so you have, you know, you're rooting for Don Draper, even though you loathe him. Yeah. Because he is a creative. But Frank Wheeler is a sellout. Yeah. He is a coward and he has no ambitions. You know, he really doesn't want to work. And in a lot of ways, he is he is the character that most novels, most suburban novels, the foil would be. Right rather than the guy that wants to have some great ambition in life. So I think that's interesting. The other, the other stock character that's straight out of fifties literature is this neighbor's son, kind of the realtor couple's son, John Givings, who's a little touched. And so yeah, he's interesting. Yeah. One of the, any, he, he's the one that basically nails Frank to the wall and says, yeah, you've got no gonads. It's very much tip. It's very typical of 1950s literature that you will have a kind of character who's a little unstable, who doesn't fit in, who people are trying to control psychiatrically. Hmm. You know, whether it's Esther Greenwood in The Bell Jar or Holden Caulfield or, you know, Allen Ginsberg in Owl or even in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Right. Where, you know, electroshock therapy is kind of one of the treatments. These are our idealized images of individuality. Society cannot contain them. And so you've got these parents trying to say, John, calm down. Don't get excited. You know, let's not make a scene. And John is the truth teller. He basically plays it out like he sees it. And Frank is appalled by that. Yeah. He's not going to be that character. Now, April, she's kind of that person. Yeah. And of course, Frank's angry because he he so much lives with this perpetuation of his I don't know illusion. Yeah, and and it just angers him when someone sees right through it. 
Yeah. And in the first part of the novel, of course, April's one of the people who buys into the illusion. Right. I mean, which you get the feeling that all of Frank's power is in just talking. Yeah. And he can just talk himself into anything and talk other people yeah. into anything. And one of the tricks used throughout the book is that Frank will start with a dilemma and talk himself all the way around it until he finds out whatever basically lets him do whatever he wants to do. Yeah. And it's a it's a master course in kind of rationalization and self justification. Yeah. As well. Sort of self delusion in a lot of ways. So as we go on a little further and we have this kind of idea of, you know, control, uh, trying to get away from control, all this, you know, this does seem to come back every now and again. I mean, you, you have other novels that, that deal with this. I guess it's just as part of the age old dilemma of when you're in your early twenties, you have a vision of who you're going, who you're becoming as an adult and who you're going to be as you grow into your adulthood and then at some point in your 50s or 60s, you look back and say, well, that didn't happen Yeah, for many of us. And so maybe it's a byproduct of some of that. Or I, did, I agree with you completely. I will say, though, I don't think this type of suburban novel was doable today because I think social media gives people too much of a ah. canvas. We have too, I say we have too many creators. But think about trying to write a suburban novel today. What are you going to do? You're going to lapse yeah. into a kind of broad slapstick where, you know, your yeah. neighbors, you know, where the Campbell woman in this novel, Shep's wife, is going to be a t on TikTok doing MILF jokes or something like yeah. this. I mean, it's just a sort of absurdity that we live yeah. in today where, you know, all of these platforms give people the kind of fantasy images of themselves. The older I get, I get a little cranky. And <laughs> sometimes when I see these things like the Instagram, the Instagrams and the TikToks, where, you know, you have people out there that are, you know, doing what I would consider pretty vulgar types of jokes and yeah. kind of perpetuating a lot of uh, what feel like kind of sexist ideas about couples and stuff. And then I think, do these people, do they not, have any sense of shame do they i you know i go to work and i worry about what people have seen on my facebook page or something you know i'm very aware like that maybe yeah. i shouldn't be but of course what they're trying to do is monetize all that stuff right and making make a living out of it well you know when we were in high school and going to college anything you did that was somewhat illegal even if it's as uncomplicated is underage drinking with a bunch of buddies out in the field somewhere. Right. You didn't feel the need to document every single moment of the day all the time. I mean, one yeah. of the things I always think when we see some horrible video about someone who's sick and calling for help or being brutalized or being hurt is maybe we get a video of one person willing to jump in there and help, but everyone else is standing around their phone out taking a video. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's a very strange age and it's a strange time. I am so glad I went through my young adulthood back before everything had to be re recorded <laughs> in some kind of social media platform. It's Well, think about if April were a contemporary character. She would have no reason to be unfulfilled. She wouldn't right. need the Laurel players. She wouldn't need this fantastic. And let me, let me just say the opening novel, the opening chapter of the novel is brutal. Yeah. And in its dissection of this belief on the part of people that they are uh, somehow have an aesthetic ideal that they that uh, or any kind of aesthetic talent 
because it just is such a gruesome critique of you know amateur theater, which yeah, you know, in the scope of things, let's let's say it is pretty harmless. Yeah, but it's it's a way of sort of saying to these people in the suburbs, you have no imagination. Well, right. she wouldn't feel unfulfilled today because she could get on these social platforms and be a performer and, yeah. you know, and have the kind of viral fame that April can only imagine the special that makes life special. Although now the problem is you're not the only star in a little tiny galaxy. You're competing against the other 300 million people on that platform who think they should be the stars. Yeah that you watch. And so it's how does the, the audience sift through all the, the clutter to find yeah. the occasional thread of gold. I mean, it's, it's hard, but it, it, and it is amazing to me, the variety of people that are doing this. I mean, you have people that are, you know, you have older folks, people older than us trying to, trying to be these media stars. It's not just kids anymore. Right. It does feel almost like, like an inverse of, Thoreau's lives of quiet desperation. These are yeah. lives of loud desperation. So let's uh, talk about our criteria. Is it a great American novel? It's clearly about the American scene and very American themes. It's not that they don't have Italian suburbs or French <laughs> suburbs, but or Chinese ones. But I think that this whole notion of the you know the forties, fifties, sixties kind of growth and unparalleled rise of of kind of capitalistic power and expressed through the consumerist society is zipping out to the suburbs and you don't need two one car you need two cars you don't need this kind of stove you need that kind of stove and you yeah. know wear the, the right brands and buy the right things and define yourself all that's very american and it's certainly about american themes so here are the other questions sufficient you know heft or scope or depth and is it a significant enough artistic accomplishment to claim durability? What do you think? So it would be interesting to see where we fall on this. My own feeling is that this is a great novel, but I don't think it's a great American novel. Okay. I think it is great in its critique of a certain moment in time. To my own personal feeling is it doesn't quite rise enough above a novel of manners. To give ah. it the, to give it at least a way to make it universal. Yeah. If I am a multicultural reader, if I am a woman, quite frankly, a female reader, yeah. I look at this book and I'm like, man, you know, this seems yeah. the experience in this book seems pretty narrow. So right. I, I personally think, in terms of style and depth, I think it's it, it it's great. I don't think it has the heft or the scope to quite make that leap in the way. Now, the question is, does any suburban novel? Well, yeah. I might argue that Rabbit Run is a great American novel. I don't hmm. think the other three necessarily are in the Rabbit entries, but I think it is because there's an element of a journey there. There's a sense of, you know, there's a sense of a character being made into a type. Hmm a type who wants to resist type. And I just don't feel that with Frank. It's maybe, maybe it's because he does capitulate in the end. I just, I want, I want them to be a little more rebellious. I want them to, to stand up for something a little more. 
maybe if the novel were told from April's point of view, I would right. I would feel very differently. Well, I think what I might say in response, and I'm not as big on Updike as you are. I do like a lot of the early short fiction, but I don't, I don't really care for the rabbit novels that much. Hmm. What I might argue is if the artistic levels of the writing, if the style had enough, I mean, this is a purposely flat, matter-of-fact, affectless style. Yeah. Right. I mean, it is it is Spartan, but but not in a kind of poetical way that you see in Hemingway or James M. Cain, but in a very, you know, there's just no extra anything really going on there other than what you see in terms of the character's inner thoughts, which is where he he really occupies most of his time. And I think if there was a little more going on with the artistry of the writing as it's sustained across the entire novel, you might think that it does develop sufficient scope and depth and that it might have more to do. But I think the style, which works perfectly in short fiction, mm-hmm. doesn't sustain over the course of a novel. So I agree with you. I don't really think it's a, I think it's a very good novel and worthy of being read and worthy of people holding on to, but is it going to make my personal top 25 or 50 American novels and thus be a contender for the great American novel, it's not really there. I think it'd be an interesting discussion down the line if we ever did something like Roth's American Pastoral to compare Ah. that to this. Now, Pastoral has a much longer historical trajectory, a longer historical scope, and it's looking backward a a lot further to the time the main storyline is settled. But you know, it just feels like very much, I mean, it almost feels like this novel went out, uh, became passe within two years of its publication. Yeah. Because you are right on the cusp of the sexual revolution. You, you know, as I was reading this book, I kept thinking of the famous Philip Larkin poem about intercourse was an invented in 1963 with the arrival of the Beatles, but it was just yeah. a little too late for me. You know, yeah, I felt yeah. like Yates is kind of like that, although I don't think he would have been like a hairy, uh, like a rabbit angstrom going wild type of guy during the sexual yeah. revolution. It just doesn't it, it just feels so of its moment that it can't really be universalized in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think you're right. And so this is another time we haven't had. I think we've only one other time had our novel where we finally decided in the, the day it doesn't really quite make the the short list. And again, when we say this, we don't mean not worthy of reading. It absolutely is. And it, yeah. and especially if you are someone who was very into Mad Men, you know, there's another television reference you brought up the other day, Kirk, that I had forgotten until you mentioned it again. And that this writer and book are also referenced in a roundabout way on Seinfeld. Yes, very much so. There's a famous episode of Seinfeld. It's a great story. Yates's daughter lived in New York and somehow dated Larry David in the mid '80s very briefly, and they're still friends today. I mean, it's a it's a neat a neat story, but there was a moment where Yates's daughter, who I believe is named Monica, you know, was going to visit her father, and she didn't want to go alone, and she asked Larry David to come along, and it was apparently just an excruciating <laughs> dinner to get through. And they made this into the classic episode of Seinfeld called The Jacket. 
and yeah. great shot. Now they didn't mock Yates, which I think is yeah. is good, and that's a sign of how much Larry David, you know, sort of is is friends with Monica. But the idea of this forgotten writer coming back and just absolutely humorless, Jerry and George just cannot connect with the guy at all. No. This was before people even remembered who Yates was. I mean, yeah. when I when I first saw this episode, I had no idea who they were making fun of or not making fun of, but who that was based on. And it wasn't until really a decade later during as Yates was sort of being revitalized that this whole story came out and you're like, okay, that makes sense now. Yeah, I'm trying to remember which episode of Seinfeld or what season it was, actually. It was very early. It had to have been either the, I mean, it was early 90s, so it had to be either the first, the sec, probably the second season. I think it was before the, you know, the, the JFK takeoff. I just put our research assistant, Ms. Google, on it, and it turns out it's a third episode of the second season, and yeah. it aired in February 1991. So there you go. it would have been the kind of, year before he passed away yeah. uh, a year and a half or so before he passed away so and in the biography he apparently gathered students and other faculty at, at Alabama together to watch it he, you know he was kind of amused by it but also very much playing up that he was he was being ribbed as being passé <laughs> and old fashioned so it, it's it's really one of the more remarkable stories i think I can't think of two aesthetics that are absolutely different than Richard Yates and Seinfeld. And for them to somehow be connected is just hilarious to me. It is absolutely hilarious. Kirk, let me offer you a couple of books for canon fodder. And I don't know that either one of these I necessarily think is a true contender for great American novel, but they both have, I think, interesting connotations to the discussion today. The first one, and I was reminded of this book because... The One True Sentence Hemingway podcast had this author on as a guest to talk mm -hmm. about one of Hemingway's stories not long back. And that would be Bright Lights, Big City by Jay McInerney. Yeah. And what I find interesting about that is in the same way that we had this wave of writers in a 10-year period all dealing with the same subject, you had a wave of young writers in the late Eight, or excuse me, the uh, early 80s. And so Jay McInerney, Thomas Janowitz, Reddy Sinellis, we could probably name a couple others who fit in that category, were called the Literary Brat Pack. And so you had the film Brat Pack of all the John Hughes people, Molly Ringwald and Andrew McCarthy and, and uh, all those people. And then you had these, these writers who were all, I think, mostly living around New York, and they all were publishing in those kind of new vintage international, especially cool looking paperbacks. So Bright Lights, Big City is this story, this novel is told entirely in the second person and very effectively. And of course, it's about a young man working as a fact checker for the New Yorker who's very bad at it, spends all his money and time out doing coke and selling himself short in a way, having these kind of illusions and dreams that he can, should be able to follow and, and failing to do it until kind of uh, a family member gets in the way of it. And it's just interesting to think of how we have had these kind of literary waves of groups of writers that tackle a certain thing going on in the zeitgeist. And they all come up at a certain age of a certain generation at a certain time. And for some reason or another, kind of connected to Yates. The other one 
would be a more recent addition to the whole quiet life of suburban desperation idea, and that would be Little Children by Mm -hmm. Tom Parada. That's a great, great choice. Yeah, it tells the story mostly from the April Wheeler character's point of view, but also from a man's point of view who's a kind of house husband who had been a really exceptional athlete and has been injured. He's not able to do that anymore and is is being kept by a very successful wife and is just trying to make his life make sense. So it it may well be, you could argue, this is another novel that's really speaking to a particular time and place. You do see the early days of people getting addicted to certain kinds of weird, very peculiar uh, porn sites you see. Mm-hmm. But you also have all the the mothers who judge each other based on what the yeah. kids do or don't have. In their lunch boxes, you see how they all have the the big crush on the one writer. This was turned into, I thought, a pretty successful movie, yeah. which starred, coincidentally enough, also. Now, the novel came out in 2003, but it also starred from the same uh, woman from Titanic and later Revolutionary Road. It stars Kate Winslet. Yeah, so a, a interesting connection. I'm fascinated that you mentioned Tom Perota because I think, for better or worse, I think he kind of kind of peaked a little bit with little children. Yeah. Although I think he was involved in that HBO show, The Leftovers, if I remember right. He has a book, and I just had to look it up, to me that's fascinating, called Mrs. Fletcher, which is exactly right. what we were talking about in this weird kind of internet viral culture where people in the suburbs who are living otherwise ordinary staid lives are kind of sexing it up online and having these kind of very bizarre fantasy lives. So it's uh that's 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 one novel I would recommend. What year did that come out? I'm looking at it. I guess it's 2017. Yeah, novel came out in 17 and that's also been turned into an HBO. Oh, I didn't know that. Movie, I think, or instead of a TV show. So the thing, the thing I would say about Perota that's different than Yates is Perota is very much a satirist. Oh yeah, and you you never feel the characters are quite as real. No, as Yates's characters, and probably his best novel and the one that's certainly the best movie is Election. Oh yeah, yeah, which he, is the high school kid who's yeah. just obsessed with winning her election yeah. and her probably English teacher. I'm not sure what he is uh, obsessed with stopping her from winning. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, we all have known a bazillion Tracy Flicks in our life. Taylor Swift may be the ultimate Tracy Flick, but I think he did a Tracy Flick sequel recently. He's a hard guy to keep up with because he's so prolific. Yeah. Uh, Tracy Flick can't win. I think yeah. he uh, picks up on her as a 30 something, I think. Uh I'll have to check that out. All right. So what are we going to do for our next book then, Scott? Kirk, for our next novel, we are doing William Faulkner's, I would say, probably most popular novel, certainly the most read and most taught, As I Lay Dying. Groundbreaking, experimental, but very readable, shorter than most of his other books in terms of pure word count, and more readable than a lot of them as well. Famously, he supposedly wrote this one when he worked for the University of Mississippi's power plant, and he would turn a wheelbarrow upside down and get with his legal pad on the upside down wheelbarrow and crank it out. 
So as they dying, when our first repeat author that we've done, and of course it would have to be Mr. William Faulkner. Well, we thank you again for listening to the Great American Novel Podcast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're so inclined, please leave a review. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you may also enjoy others, such as Master to 40 with Kirk and Robert Trogdon, focusing on the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Reading McCarthy with myself and various guests about the works of Cormac McCarthy. And you can always email us at greatamericannovelpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thanks for listening.